So I grew up here in Tallahassee, going to Buck Lake Elementary School, then Swift Creek Middle, and then Lincoln High School. And there's an experience from my time at elementary school that just remains lodged in my memories for some reason. Along with the school's theme song, we all go to Buck Lake, Buck Lake, Buck Lake Elementary, that's our school. For some reason, that's never going to go away, even though I can't remember what I did yesterday. But I digress. See, I was in class in elementary school, and the teacher said that she wanted to pause class and show us something. And she took us outside to a man standing in front of a giant chunk of a tree holding a chainsaw which was disconcerting without context. I guess this is, this is how I die, right? But the guy explained that he had been invited to do this art project by the school. And he said he was going to do something interesting. He said he was going to carve from this log a statue of a bobcat, the school's mascot, uh, just chilling on a tree. And then he started his chainsaw and began hacking away, which was pretty cool for elementary school Mike. That was the only part that really interested me. Anarchy, right? But... As a child who had never seen such a feat before, I thought this sounded absurd as I left. How is that log going to become a bobcat with a chainsaw? Like, good luck, chainsaw man. It just didn't make any sense to me. I couldn't even imagine or envision it. Well, a couple weeks passed and were brought out again by the teacher. And lo and behold, the crazy chainsaw man had done it. And I have no idea if the statue's still there or if it's been eroded by weather or whatever else. But man, I remember it being beautiful. It was unbelievably detailed and intricate. And it just blew my mind. I'm sure you guys have seen stuff like this. And ever since, I've been fascinated with the art of sculpting, of creating statues. Even later in high school and college, when I studied art history, what I found is that I enjoyed paintings intellectually. Architecture filled me with awe, but it was the process of sculpting that fascinated me most. I found myself enraptured by pieces like the Pieta, which was uh, by Michelangelo, the only piece he ever signed. Weighing 6,700 pounds, it was sculpted from a single slab of marble over two years. And I could study the details of this piece for hours. The faces, the marks of the crucifixion, the ripples of the robes that look like they're actually moving with the breeze. Or this one, The Ecstasy of St. Teresa by Juan Lorenzo Bernini, a Baroque-era masterpiece that depicts the spiritual awakening of Teresa of Avila. Ridiculously detailed in so many ways, but what I love the most about this piece is that it's designed to merge with the space it's been placed in. There's a hidden window in the dome above that illuminates the figures and casts these remarkable shadows and lights up these stucco golden rays, makes the whole thing look alive. Or, this is one of my favorites because of its sheer size, the motherland calls. This was designed by two Russian sculptors and engineers, and it is one of the most brilliant statues in the world. It commemorates the fight against Nazi Germany. It took almost eight years to complete and stands 279 feet tall. For context, that is 100 feet taller than the Statue of Liberty. It remains the tallest statue in Europe and the tallest statue of a woman and a sword in the world. To keep the sword held out, though, and this was really cool, they had to make the entire statue, the arm and the sword, hollow laced with wire, with concrete walls 
almost a foot thick. And I mean, these statues, they leave me in awe, like few pieces of art can. I can't wrap my mind around how someone can look at a block of stone, see this potential vision within it, and then bring it to reality through creative work, one swing of a hammer and chisel at a time. It just blows my mind. And that creative process, I think, speaks to the vision that the biblical story believes defines and directs our lives. This vision rooted in creativity and grounded in the very first pages of scripture, in Genesis chapters one and two. In this story, this origin story that sets the course for the entire Bible, what we as Christians call the creation account, where God creates all things in our universe good and then shapes humanity and places them in this garden called Eden, which is a symbol of what God intended for creation. This space defined by right relationships, creative work and divine rest. And what's interesting to me about this account is that we often only talk about Genesis 1 and 2 to talk about what's wrong, what has been lost in our world. See, we look around and we look at our world and we don't see Eden. And then we immediately jump to Genesis 3. And we remember that in the biblical story in Genesis 3, humanity rebels and Eden is lost. And while that's very true, only focusing on that aspect of Genesis is a mistake. You see, the biblical story doesn't start with a problem. It starts with goodness, then a problem, and then God bringing us back to goodness again, working to renew creation and humanity back to the Garden of Eden through Jesus. And this is really important because if the Bible doesn't start with a problem, but rather a good vision that God is moving us back to, then I think Genesis has far more to teach us than just what we've lost. It holds the original vision and patterns for humanity and life that God had intended us to have. And as disciples of Jesus, it holds the vision of I, what I believe God intends to shape our lives into from blocks of stone with all this raw potential crafted into intricate, beautiful statues of Jesus, the true image bearer of God and the Garden of Eden once again here and now. And it's that creative vision of Genesis that I want to explore and I want to sit with in our new series here at E3. The series we're calling Rhythms of the Garden. See, I want to sit down in God's creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 to look for the vision of humanity that God intended and the rhythms of life that define how they were called to live. These rhythms of creativity, relationship, work, and rest that I believe through Jesus, God invites us to rediscover and be sculpted by bit by bit back into that good vision of who and what we were created to be. And personally, y'all, I'm excited. I love these first two chapters. I think the whole Bible comes back to them. And I can't think of a better way to dive into my new year than trying to remember who I was created to be and the rhythms that helped me get there. Now, to set the table for Genesis's creation account for this series, I actually wanna begin with its uniqueness. I mean, this is kind of misleading. You see, we often assume 
that the idea of creation is in and of itself unique. But that's not true. You see, in the ancient Near East, which provides the geographical, cultural, and historical context of the Bible, you see, that part of the world was full of stories of gods creating the universe and humanity. The most famous during the time that Genesis was written and during Israel's time being the Babylonian creation story, the Enuma Elish. And I want to walk through it briefly because it highlights what's unique about this Genesis story. See, the Enuma Elish begins with the universe in chaos until the god Marduk, the guy, crazy sword, defeats chaos, symbolized by the goddess Tiamat, this wild creature. Marduk, Marduk kills Tiamat, tears her in half, and uses her two halves to create the sky and the earth. Then the gods grow tired of having to work to feed themselves. So they kill another god, they spill his blood, they mix it with the dirt of the earth, and they create human beings from it, created to be their slaves. And then from among those human beings, they pick a couple kings to rule them, to do the work that gods don't want to do, to keep the food coming. And you're like, what a horrifying, strange story, probably. But what does this have to teach us about Genesis? What does this have to do with Genesis? Well, imagine for a moment, you're an ancient Babylonian or an Israelite. Ask yourself, what does this story teach me about the divine, our world, and myself as a human being? Well, for one, it teaches you that the divine is defined by conflict. Multiple, fickle, selfish gods warring with each other. That's how the gods work in your life. Second, I think it teaches you that the universe and humanity are created from violence. They literally come about through acts of divine murder, the gods killing each other. And finally, I think it teaches you that your purpose for existing is slavery. That humanity was only created to appease the gods by doing the work that they don't want to do. Conflict, violence, and bondage set the foundations of your world, gods, and your identity. I mean, that's rough. And I want you to hold on to that. Now imagine you've lived under that story and those themes. Now let's see what Genesis offers instead. Genesis 1.1, the first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that light was good and he separated light from darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So everything is empty, dark and formless until God speaks light, order, and existence into being. And this actually sets the pattern for Genesis 1. It's this poetic account that covers seven symbolic days of creation, where each day God looks at the universe, commands, let there be blank, and then what he commanded pops into existence. And God calls it good or pleasing and inherently valuable. It's an image of God as this kingly, loving, creative, artist of life. On days one, two, and three, God creates the canvas of the universe. On day one, the universe itself. And then on day two, 
He creates the sky and the sea. And really, I should have gotten the grabs to do this because I'm a terrible artist, but oh well, you guys get to watch me fail. So he creates the sea, right? And he creates the sky. These are clouds, pretty little clouds, pretty little clouds. Then on day three, he speaks into existence the land and vegetation. So I guess we're just going to draw a mountain. That's the best I can do. Sorry, guys. And then we get some pretty little trees. Going to Bob Ross this. Pretty little trees. There are no mistakes when you're making art. So he creates within it. He fills it with vegetation. And then each of these first three days is paired with one of the days four, five, or six. You see, God has spoken into existence the universe and, and physical life. And then what he does is he begins to speak into existence life to fill each part of creation, painting life into each unique canvas. On day four, he fills the heavens with light. He creates the sun, which apparently is below the clouds, but you guys are going to have to bear with me. He creates the moon. He creates the stars, filling what was dark with light that he calls good. Then on day five, he skills the sky and the sea, painting fish and birds within it, filling these canvases with life to inhabit it. Give this fish a little smiley face. Then on day six, he feels the land, painting within it animals and humanity. I'm going to call this Hank, my dog. And here's me, happy little Mike. And then on the seventh day, God looks at what he's created and he blesses every, every creature, animal and human, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill their canvases with more life. And he sees that creation is good. And on the seventh day, he rests from his creative work. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed, but there are similarities here to the Numa Elish, such as the image of the divine bringing shape to empty chaos. But the differences are stark, and they are far more important especially in what they teach someone saturated with creation stories of conflict, violence, and bondage. Are there multiple gods in this Genesis story? No, there's one infinite but singular God creating everything. There is darkness and chaos, but is this God threatened by those things? Is the universe created out of conflict and violence with them? No, this God simply commands chaos to still and it obeys. There's no conflict needed for this God to create. He simply speaks and brings light to darkness, order to disorder, peace to chaos, life to what was empty. And is creation a source of frustration for this God? No, it's intended, wanted, affirmed, beautiful. It's a place of provision and goodness where life, not death, thrives, something that this God calls good, pleasing, valuable. This paints an incredibly different image of God in our universe. And the same is true for its image of humanity. We jump to verse 26. It's this culmination of the sixth day. We read this poem. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. 
so they may rule over the fish in the sea and birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them like he blessed all the other creatures and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Are human beings slaves created by fickle, violent gods made to do the work that the gods are just too lazy to do in this story? No, this is a very different vision of humanity captured by four unique words that are only applied to humanity compared to the other creatures. First, God says, let us make humanity in our image and likeness. Image, salim, means to resemble. It's actually the same word used for idols in the Bible or statues of gods that were believed to contain that God's divine presence and to represent them on earth, which is very interesting because Israel is forbidden from making idols by the Ten Commandments. And this is cool. Humans can't make idols of the one true living creator, God, because they are idols of the one true living creator, God. Humanity at their beginning is created to reflect and represent God in creation, like an idol would reflect and represent God in a temple. And then two, this other word likeness or demuth means similar to. It's used for the intimate identity, relationship, and commonality shared within a family. A child shares in the likeness of their parents, as it says later in Genesis. In Genesis, humans aren't created to be slaves of the divine. I mean, this is powerful. They are divine family in this story, created for relationship with God, to reflect his nature in creation as his children and his idols, his images living within it. And that intimate portrait of what humanity is is further expanded by these other two words, these two tasks given to humanity in this text. Humanity is told to rule or radah over the creatures and to subdue or kavash the earth. And I've preached on these words in detail before. They're profound, but often misunderstood. In English, we tend to think of rule and subdue as violent, controlling, oppressive terms which can lead us to treat God's good creation as our object or as our tool. But in Hebrew and in Genesis, the context of the story, that's not what these words are about at all. First, you have this idea of ruling or radah. Ruling is used for kingship in the Bible, how a king rules over subjects. But you have to understand that in the context of the story of so far, this ruling is something that God has already been doing through the first six days. As king, what we've seen is God has been commanding into existence a world that fits his vision, ordered, peaceful, and designed for all life to flourish. That sets the context of what radah means in the Genesis account. Thus, as images of God who have been tasked with ruling God's creation, what we're doing is we're being tasked to rule it as God has already modeled for us. Humanity is given authority but it's not to do whatever they want. Rather, it's to continue his creative work by reflecting how he rules creation with his abundant life flourishing from it, which is affirmed further by this other task they're given, subdue the earth. And this is a term used for gardening. It's actually very fascinating. It's when you work the ground to help it create more than it would by itself. I mean, 
pretty easy to understand. Land grows vegetation naturally, but it has the potential for more if it is cultivated, cared for, nurtured to produce more with our intention, our resources, and a little elbow grease. I mean, think about what this account teaches us, humans, as representatives and family members in God's family are invited, no, are given the privilege by their creator to bring their will and intention to raw creation to help make life flourish even more than it would on its own through how they rule like their God does. They're invited and given the privilege to take part in the creative work that God's already started. I mean, can you imagine how this would impact you if you'd grown up hearing stories like the Enuma Elish? God isn't a fickle, absent, violent slave master. He's present, caring, relational, active. He's inviting. And we aren't slaves or byproducts, divine violence and conflict. We're intentionally and lovingly created to be part of God's family, to share in his creative work This God isn't detached from us. He wants to complete his good creation project in relationship with what he's created. I mean, to put it simply, we were created to co-create with God in our lives. That's what it means to be human in Genesis. And I think that's astounding. I think that's a beautiful image of who we were created to be. And it's a profound vision for who, through Jesus, we're invited and empowered to be again. I just think that's so cool. Co-creators with God. But in that, I think Genesis asks me some pretty tough questions too. It asks me, do you see yourself as a co-creator with the divine call of creativity in how you live? Do you see every moment of your limited life as a gifted canvas to create within play and paint meaning and goodness onto? Do you see whatever is in front of you as an opportunity to use the resources our God has given you, time, talents, and treasures to sculpt from the divine potential of that moment, that conversation, that interaction, that encounter, his good vision for what it could be, his pocket of Eden in that moment? I mean, Genesis reminds me that God is pushing forward his task of creation every day through me, through how I cultivate and grow life in my communities, through how I care for and raise my daughter, through how I reflect God and his character at my work to my coworkers, through how I in every conversation and interaction love my neighbor as myself. And I mean, that challenges me in a wonderful way. See, it's easy for me, and I imagine for a lot of you, to begin to see life as mundane, especially in a time like COVID, to see every day as exactly the same, to be apathetic, not creative with our daily lives, with our will and our intention and the singular moments of it. But we were created for far more than apathy, according to this story. Because each seemingly mundane moment is actually a divine canvas onto which God wants to paint scenes of flourishing life and beauty and goodness with 
and through us, the people he's created. And I think that means something really important. It means that it's up to me to decide each day when I wake up and each moment thereafter, whether I'm going to use that divine privilege to paint onto the moments, chaos, or order, and how I engage my world, whether I'm going to paint onto the canvas of that moment, hate, or love, and how I respond to the person in front of me, whether I'm going to paint onto this moment violence or peace through whether I seek to build his kingdom or my own, his image of Eden or my little pocket of my kingdom on the world. Or if I'm going to, finally, if I'm going to engage that moment with apathy or divine creativity. Am I going to look at each moment of my life as an opportunity to reflect God in my world through what I paint with the time he's given me, the talents I have with the resources that have been blessed to me, See, in God's story, we are called to engage every moment with awe, wonder, and gratitude and with divine, loving creativity. Humanity was designed to be creative creatures. We just have to decide moment by moment whether we want to create Eden or its loss with the limited time we have and how we sculpt relationships, paint with our work, and shape our rest. And I'll just speak for myself. I would like the art that I make with my life this year to reflect the little pocket of Eden, not its loss. And if you do too, then I invite you to come on this journey over the next month. Because like with sculpting, that creative work begins with a big, formless hunk of stone, of raw material of our time, our talents, our treasures, that with the right vision and rhythms, one paint stroke, chisel, step at a time, God can shape into something beautiful. But we need the vision and we need the rhythms. We need to learn again who we are created to be and how God wants to get us there in the daily rhythms of our life. So as we dive into this next part of his creation story with Genesis 2 and the Garden of Eden next week, I just invite you to do so with the hope, looking to find its vision for life as co-creators with God. Just if you're willing to adopt the rhythms of life, it shows us. And if you're willing to use them to let God teach us how to craft divine relationships, work and rest. And I think we're willing to do that. We're going to see that he is going to shape our lives according to his good vision and of Eden. And I think that is a very cool invitation. Amen.
Amen.